Black Cats Run podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. On today's episode, we're performing a Christmas miracle. You no longer have to waste your time and energy and enter back into the cycle of expectation, frustration, disappointment. Should I sell all of my cycling equipment online? I guess I shouldn't sell my cycling equipment because exercise is good for me and it's a part of my identity. Maybe I should just train easier. And now, you know, it would be nice to be in a little bit of better shape. Maybe I should just give intervals and FTP another chance. Maybe they aren't as bad as I remember. Maybe it was me. Was I the problem? Is there something I need to do differently? I'm just going to welcome FTP back into my life. Okay, this is harder than I remember, but it must be worth it. I should be patient. I should be understanding. FTP isn't trying to hurt me. I'm the one who's mentally weak. I need to change. Nope. FTP, it's just a bunch of bullshit. Let's get into today's episode. Don't train with FTP. We have talked quite a bit about the idea of traumatic uh, relationships with sports throughout the first year of this podcast. And I know for a lot of people, um, that's been something that we've related to or so feeling that has been put out there, something that a lot of us have experienced, but we haven't really found that that's been something that people have connected to. And I've tried to bring forward the understanding that it's not about us struggling to overcome some weaker nature within our baser, less achieving self and finding the the inner weaver, uh, inner achiever. And that's not really what's going on. In order to be achieving and be successful, we need to have a strategy that works, a strategy that makes sense. And if we don't, then we're not going to get to the point where we're going to be able to see ourselves becoming quote-unquote high-achieving. And that high-achieving thing can mean different things for different people. Some people have the potential to become professional athletes. Some people are just looking to feel stronger and fitter than they've been able to feel in the past. There's no right way or wrong way to value fitness and try to get uh, meaning out of your investment into that. Okay. Nor, and this is really significant, nor is it the case that the principles, the nature of training, the process by which we use an applied schedule or strategy of physical exercise to improve fitness and in the future, um, take things that were hard and make them easy. Um, that's not something that differentiates or changes depending on what you're trying to do. For example, the idea that special kinds of training are what you need to be a special kind of athlete. And this episode in particular goes out to the cyclist listeners out there um, who are in a particular kind of um, meat grinder of FTP, functional threshold power, um, which is the most inane concept uh, that you can use to train, either whether that's doing FTP workouts, uh, 
or, and I think it's important to emphasize this and I'll reemphasize this, or following any training methodology slash philosophy that attempts to use or apply uh, a model derived from FTP. Now, if you've really listened to a lot of our content uh, here, you, this is not going to necessarily all be revelatory, but it is going to tie together a lot of preceding thoughts, right? So a lot of the uh, groundwork um, and the evidence to support these conclusions uh, goes back to other episodes. And those are, of course, freely available for the curious to go back and, and listen through those. And also, you can check us out on our Instagram uh, page at Black Cats Run, and you can feel free to send us a message if you're curious or if you just want to tell us why we're wrong, um, whatever the case may be. Uh, we're happy to hear from you there in that space. So FTP, right, which we can think of as being analogous to this idea of what is your 60-minute uh, peak power. Um, FTP is one of the most dominant ideas in training for cyclists. And I think one of the things that really drove FTP to relevance um, partly was the uh, introduction, uh, more increasingly widespread use of uh, the power meter as a training metric. Right? And for anybody out there who is not up to speed on this concept, the power meter is just um, something that's on your bike that tells you how many watts of force you are uh, applying as you're pedaling, right? So it's a way to measure work in the same way that you could look at how many pounds uh, you're lifting. And then, uh, you know, watts being a, a unit of work, you can then look at that and say watts per body weight, right? We're usually just expressed in watts per kilogram. And then we know how fast basically people are going to go, um, you know, uphill, you know, depending on the gradient. And, you know, and that's always been true in endurance sports that it's, that's the case that the leaner, lighter athletes, all else being equal, are going to uh, wipe the floor um, against you know their heavier peers because uh, the force they are able to apply relative to their mass is just so much more effective. Um, and driving, though, out of the power meter, I think particularly influential was Team Sky. And what was talked about was this idea of marginal gains. And, you know, I think an especially significant example of this was, uh, you know, Bradley Wiggins, who won the Tour de France and the uh, Olympic gold medal in the time trial. And I think also the uh, world championship uh, time trial titles all in the same summer, the same calendar year, um, you know, pretty impressive athletic feat. Right. And, when he won the tour, um, you know, what was talked about was that he was riding to power and that he was looking at his power meter and he knew um, that he shouldn't go faster than such and such power. And so he wasn't, quote, somehow that was interpreted as not racing because um, apparently racing means following the speed of whoever is uh, setting the tempo. And I understand why, right? As cyclists, we tend to maybe view that as more of an imperative because there's this sort of anxiety um, because of the effect of drafting that if a group goes down the road, um, you know, are, are we potentially going to be screwed? Is the race going to be over? Um, but even in running, you know, we see this too. And that idea, right, and the success that he had and then the uh, success that Team Sky continued to have, you know, primarily, uh, you know, around Chris Froome um, really brought forward this concept of 
you know, marginal gains being, I mean, it got to the point, right, where uh, marginal was taken to mean the opposite, that this marginal gain was actually the significant gain, um, which is, is not the point. And, and some people have done some uh, interesting stuff where they show mathematically with the impacts of marginal gains is, you know, literally true to the term marginal, which they could really be called negligible uh, gains. It's also possible that, you know, this was a rhetorical strategy um, used to do two things. Number one, to sort of uh, define the sort of managerial strategy, which is, you know, for that team, which is like, we're going to try to like leave no stone unturned and we're going to try to address everything, um, even if it seems marginal, right? The perspective of engaging with that stuff is going to lead to a a cumulatively uh, significant difference in the form of uh, it's just going to have such a big impact over the long term and how everybody starts to think about and go about their their experience. And, you know, there's a lot of chaos in, you know, athletes as people. Um, and especially anytime you enter into like kind of a team situation, um, you know, people are going to, you're more likely to have athletes um, who are not going to be like as high performing in their lifestyle. And I would grant you that the high performing concept is a little bit subjective. But, uh, you know, that's true, right? People doing recreational drugs, um, you know, people doing, you know, just exhausting themselves, people not really following through on their training. To what extent that stuff really matters um, is maybe a different issue. But, I mean, at the very least, what's significant is the perception that those things have a significant impact. I've listened to podcasts where people have gotten very upset about the effect of drinking half a Diet Coke. Um, would have on an athlete before a competition. And I was like, okay, totally uh, over overstated. There's no impact um, from that. But carrying out of this cultural moment, I think, is really why um, the idea of there being this critical power takes off. So when you're looking at these Tour de France climbs, right, you're not out there doing climbs that are taking you hours and hours, right? You know, you sort of think of efforts that are kind of similar, maybe, in in duration to like running maybe like plus or minus right but let's just say a 10k road race and then 10k uh running you know let's just say 30 minutes ish to 35 minutes maybe to 40 minutes has also been equated to this mlss this maximum lactate steady state concept and i've posted a graphic on our instagram page um in the in the past and you're welcome to go there and, and check that out and i'll try to repost that to the story for people who want to find that more easily as you're listening, if I can remember to do that. Um, but where I showed the uh, shifting sands of people's attempts to try to like determine uh, from lactate what this stuff is and kind of like the most recent significant thing, maybe around 2003, was this maximum lactate steady state concept. Um, and so when you combine this concept and that sort of drove the four millimole value, um, when you combine that with then, you know, um, the sort of pop sporting culture significance of Team Sky and chalking that up to, well, you know, they're riding the power and which is, you know, guess what? Like if you're a uh, cognitively well-developed 
successful endurance athlete, you're always working to power. You have to know and have an understanding of what you can and can't do. And uh, we've talked on the podcast about how historically different people have arrived at different ways to think about that. And I've tried to make the argument that when you look at the historical evidence, it's very clear that what people are doing is they're working off of a lactate threshold. I've also tried to explain that lactate threshold is an intensity that is not FTP, okay? Uh, It's a very easy intensity. Um, It's very difficult to recognize, and it is most significant in terms of training because what we're trying to do in training is we are ultimately trying to answer the question of, like, what do I need to do, which is a combination of um, how much time and how much effort should I be applying. And it turns out you want to apply a lot of time with what is actually a very, very moderate amount of effort, uh, very modest. We've talked also on the podcast this year about how different ways of defining um, physical exertion is a product of the formative experiences we have as athletes. And we are learning to interpret you know, red light, green light, yellow light level intensities as being very, very different set of subjective uh, sensations and symptoms. So we don't all have a universal understanding for that. And it's also the case um, that physiologically, um, we don't all have the same thing going on, even if you try to standardize it by saying, well, let's have people go as hard as they can for 60 minutes or do an FTP evaluation where you establish a standardized protocol. One well-known example would be uh, doing 20 minutes and then taking 95% of your power for 20 minutes and saying that's FTP. So that concept is why I refer to this as the 60-minute fallacy, okay? Because your threshold, which is the only sort of thing that we can validate uh, using this, and I've made the argument that when we're looking at getting better as an endurance athlete, the primary modality is aerobic capacity. Lactate is the preferred metabolite. You need to train at the intensity that is going to give you maximum benefit in terms of your ability to use that preferred metabolite. Everybody can produce and accumulate lactate in the blood as they get to sufficiently high levels of exertion. Um, You get to a high enough percentage of your maximum, you're going to show increasing accumulation of blood lactate. That shows that your limitation in exercise is simply the fact that you do not have the capacity to take advantage of the available energy. It is not a lack of strength, okay? It is a lack of capacity to take advantage of what you already can do. You can produce the power or else you wouldn't be moving faster than lactate threshold in the first place. And you have the metabolites to do it efficiently, which is indicated by the accumulation of the blood lactate. So your problem in performance isn't that you need to do some crazy, nonsense, high-intensity, kill-yourself training, because it doesn't work. Okay, it does not work. Yes, there's the filtering effect, as we've talked about before. If you throw everybody into the system, right, and as Jack, even Jack Daniels, who I disagree with his book on a lot of things, but has made the comment extremely shrewd and well-stated. A lot of people, it's eggs against the wall. You take a bunch of eggs, you throw them against the wall, right? And the people that work are the people that work. And why, why does Jack Daniels arrive at such low-volume recommendations of training? Because if you want to take a higher-intensity modality and increase the number of people who are going to be successful, you have to reduce the amount of time training, 
okay? Because there's very, very few people out there who are able to take these conventional models, are able to apply them as defined by conventional wisdom, which I would consider to be uh, a wisdom, um, or, you know, as not wisdom at all. Um, there's very few people who can do that and see and see that work. For most people, this stuff is not going to work. This is not going to be effective. And what FTP has done is it's grown from these sources that I've tried to identify, among other things, but this is to show in, in a enough of a sense that it's not coming from this perspective of, oh, yes, this is this like well um, understood and validated practice of training. It's basically an extension of this idea that you know you got to train at race pace to race at race pace, um, and just uh, carrying that forward, which is a very um, outdated idea. Okay, and uh, by outdated, to be specific, what I mean by outdated is it's just not a very efficient or effective way to train. Um, does it make a difference? Sure, right? But we've talked about my favorite little, uh, I guess, thought experiment is if you take two couch potatoes and you have one of them continue to sit on the couch, you have the other one do bicep curls every day, and you have them run a mile, the person who did bicep curls probably going to beat the person who did nothing. That doesn't mean that bicep curls are the way you should train to be a cyclist or a runner or whatever, right? If you apply any kind of a stress, there's going to be some level of response, Right. And, and sometimes that response might be seem uh, very good in the short term, but in the long term, it's not really going to be sustainable. A lot of people in America learn how to train, for example, by participating in eight to 12 week sports programs. OK. Um, and they're discouraged from training between seasons. It's believed to be bad for you to do that. Which is, I mean, I can't believe that the human race survived having to be physically active every day of the year for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Um, for, you know, two million years of, of evolution to get to where we are now. It's incredible that they didn't know that they shouldn't be being physically active that much. Um, and yet somehow, right here we are recording podcasts uh, and, and making the world a better place by doing so. Um, so, the, but this FTP thing is not lactate threshold. Okay. If anything, it's analogous to lactate threshold two. And I've discussed a uh, lactate threshold two doesn't exist as there's no evidence in lactate research that supports the presence of a, a second threshold. There's, um, I, th I think basically a unwillingness to accept the fact that the ideal training intensity is so low. And I think if people in, um, coaches uh, in coach so people in coaching the coaches as well as uh, people in the lab uh, researchers had a historical awareness um, they would have gone back and said okay we're identifying this intense intensity how can we try to determine um, you know through sociological psychological uh, means how athletes experience this and then you take that and then you would go back to say uh, you know Arth Arthur Lydiard's book uh, books, right, and the experience of those athletes, and think about, okay, how are they describing this? How are they talking about this? And you'd realize, ah, okay, but we've identified here 
is this same intensity. And look at how massive, right, the improvement these folks gained relative to the competition by applying this. And I think that's where when you look at the opportunity cost of training and you say, what is the most effective way to train by saying, what is the effective response to training from all of these other different competing modalities, you're going to find that this lactate threshold thing defined correctly is the right intensity. And nobody cares. <laughs> nobody wants to do it like that um, because uh, they don't believe that training can work if it's not sufficiently hard. Uh, and when people say train, don't strain, um, that is drowned out by the no pain, no gain. Um, and, you know, glory seeking behavior, um, you know, the what creates consumed narratives. Uh, who do we model ourselves after? What is more appealing and effective in marketing? All like, you know, the ESPN commercial of Lance Armstrong, you know, riding the, tr the turbo trainer in the basement, you know, powering the electricity for ESPN. I, for those of the more gullible listeners, that was just a commercial. That's not actually what was going on, right? But that idea of, you know, being in the dungeon, right? You know, grinding away. Uh, we like those heroic uh, narratives. They're more enticing. They draw us in. They draw us to sport. Um, a lot of people aren't doing sport because they love the idea of being fit and they love how it feels to be in shape. A lot of people who are, you know, taking up sport don't know what that feels like in the first place. So they can't be drawn to that. Um, a lot of people are doing it because we're looking at the social value, right? We want people to admire us. We want to gain status. We want to gain the benefits and privileges of being high achieving. Athletics is one way to do that. Maybe we want to see if we can access the kind of material rewards, those kinds of things. Um, people can have different incentives and reasons to engage in sport. Those are not things that I uh, find essentially valuable uh, or meaningful, or those aren't things that drive my participation. I'm not doing this stuff um, because I want an audience. And, you know, yes, I have a podcast, but I'm not recording a podcast because I want an audience. I record the podcast because I think this stuff is really interesting. And I think there's a lot of ignorance. And I want to, if nothing else, go on the record um, of saying that, you know, there's an alternative perspective out there. And to try to, you know, speak to the experiences that other people might have, might uh, have been alienated um, for trying to express to coaches or other athletes and to see if it's possible to maybe, maybe normalize um, a different perspective on what the experience of this stuff should be and open the door for a better process. And I think one of the my arch nemeses here is FTP uh, when we think about cycling. And, you know, a model that I used, uh, used to use when I coached cross country um, is I found the fast cat coaching sweet spot model and um, you know, their, their graph of the zones. And I use some of that stuff as visuals um, in, in the locker room and with the athletes. And I used it as a pedagogical tool to try to educate the runners about the idea of there being, you know, different kinds of intensity, right? How to recognize the intensity, right? And try to use this thing to try to create a language and a vocabulary that we could learn to sort of try to differentiate and communicate about how hard do we feel that we're working. And you probably could have done this um, with the Borg scale, but I like the idea that it was communicating to the athletes that the hardest training sessions were not the most effective training sessions. 
Um, and I thought it was really valuable in that regard. And I, I really, I thought it made a big difference. But I also think that it's important to clarify that I didn't in any way implement the training model or ideas of, uh, you know, the sweet spot and the fast cat thing. That's not what I was doing. Um, I was, you know, I, I like the idea of this as a language um, to talk about perceived exertion and exercise and to try to learn about like, and think about, okay, well, how do we want to feel when we're exercising? What's based on how we feel? How do we know for being more or less productive? But I didn't distribute training according to their, their models. And um, sweet spot is sort of this 87 to 94% of FTP. So it's less uh, than FTP, but it's actually not really that much less than FTP. And it's certainly not uh, less enough. A, it's not less enough than FTP to be lactate threshold. Um, it's certainly not in my experience when I went through the phase where I tried to apply this stuff to my own cycling uh, back in like 2018. Winter of 2018 was in one example of a period where I tried this. Um, and it's also not possible to find sweet spot to be uh, lactate threshold by taking it as a percentage of FTP um, because FTP isn't a real thing, okay? Um, we can, social, so FTP is real in the sense that it's been socially constructed as a concept of training and what we think training should or should not be. But uh, FTP is not this like physiologically validated concept. I would say it's probably even um, more uh, an empty vessel than VO2 max is. Um, and let's explain more about that. So I think, first of all, uh, when we're thinking about, you know, FTP, right, when we say this, we want to recognize we're talking about this as something that is supposed to be what you can do for 60 minutes. And they like the idea, um, they, right, being the amorphous enemy of my podcast, they like the idea that uh, 60 minutes is a significant value, and they like the idea that it's functional, and somehow it's better than some sort of a lab-tested value. Um, and I say that without any particular bias towards lab testing. I don't work in a labor in laboratory doing exercise physiology research, uh, so I don't I don't have a I don't I don't think I have a bias towards that as opposed to some sort of like. Um, you know, in situ, right, uh, kind of attempt to determine what's going on. But I think when we look at this and we say, what is sweet spot then relative to FTP? I mean, if it's lesser than that, you know, isn't that significant, right? You're saying on this podcast, a lactate threshold is less. Well, we can't identify lactate threshold as being some fraction of FTP, unless FTP was like a standardized thing that was like identifiable by the same universal criteria. Uh, and Tim Noakes has, has a chapter on um, uh, the central governor model, and he talks about how there was a time where to be a good exercise physiologist, um, a good researcher in, in sports physiology, the way you did that um, was by testing VO2 and your status within that community um, was based on the profile of the athletes that you brought in and tested your VO2 max. And you were supposed to, you couldn't publish your studies 
unless uh, you could show that 100% of your participants reached the plateau characteristic that was supposed to mean by the definition that VO2max was reached. And he says that it felt like uh, you were doing something wrong because everybody else, apparently, based on the publications, were doing this, but he and his lab couldn't do this. And there was a pressure then to basically lie. And what he's essentially saying is that everybody was lying about uh, exhibiting these these results. Um, and, you know, but at least with VO2max, there's this sort of like 50-50 thing. And I, I don't think VO2max is valid, right? But like, this is part of the reason why there's argument is it's like, well, we're seeing this happen, you know, enough that people, it's caused people to say, well, maybe this is, this is real. But with FTP, um, all you're doing is you're just taking this idea that, well, you can start a, a watch and end it at 20 minutes, end it at 60 minutes, whatever you want to do. And then you can define and you can say to somebody, okay, could you go harder? And if they say no, then you say, okay, this is a thing. Um, but that doesn't mean that's not anything, right? You're just bracketing something. And now you're saying this is significant and meaningful. And so when you take sweet spot from that, and I'm picking on sweet spot in particular, because number one, I don't agree with it. Um, but number two, because it gets to the point that it's not just FTP, that's an issue. Um, it's all of the logic that's then built off of FTP needing to be valid because if FTP is bullshit, then that means everything else that you built off of FTP is also fucking bullshit. Okay, right? That's a huge problem, right? Because then you're pursuing this whole model of training and your whole strategy is devised off of a premise that is essentially flawed. Okay, let me say that again. You're, do, you're following a premise that is essentially flawed, okay? And that's not going to lead to particularly meaningful, effective outcomes. So I would say uh, that really taking sweet spot down as something lesser than FTP is arguably the same concept as uh, Marius Backen talking about um, people saying, well, you should be training, you shouldn't be training at four millimoles of lactate, you should be training at like uh, low 3.0 millimoles or high 2.0 millimoles. And he had much more success with that. And so if Sweet Spot is more successful uh, than FTP, where do we find, how do we determine or understand um, why it's why is that happening? Well, for Marius Backen, right, it's all relative, right? Training and competition is always relative to what other people are doing, right? So if um, you, right, back off and you're training a little bit easier, okay, now you're able to increase the amount of time that you're spending training. And this is something that, you know, is, is spelled out um, as a part of the sweet spot, uh, you know, right up for fast cat coaching. Um, it's spelled out. That like, okay, you know, you, you got to do, we do a lot more of this, right? Aha, right? So the, the key thing is you're doing more, right? But if you pull it back to real LT, then you're seeing, you go as a historical example, right? And I emphasize the historical example again and again and again, partly because I, I don't think this is something I'm inventing. This is something I'm trying to recognize and elucidate for listeners, you know, by drawing our attention to all the abundance of uh, evidence is the historical evidence is very, very 
underappreciated, undervalued, and trying to understand um, endurance sports and endurance sports performance and, and training strategy. But we go back to the literature guys, right? They're doing this every day. Okay, every day they're doing this. Look at um, the book Easy Interval Method by Klaus Luck. What do you see? What is he talking about? Right, He's talking about doing this every day. Right, He's using a different method in order to access that same intensity. Um, so Sweet Spot is just pulling it down, right? And so what is Sweet Spot predominantly uh, competing against? Well, I mean, in the United States, the reality is that uh, American cyclists suck. <laughs> and, and I don't, and I can say that, right? I think sometimes there's an idea that um, you cannot critique or criticize something um, unless you have reached a certain elite level of performance within that. And I think that's a narrative that comes from the elite level performing community um, within that space, not wanting whatever this sort of like uh, social badge value, the market value, the status value that they have to potentially be threatened. If any of those people would like to bribe me with hundreds of thousands of dollars, please let me know. I'm always happy to take checks for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, but I suspect those are not a part of our uh, listener base. Um, so I'm going to freely criticize this anyway. Uh, and I mean this uh, not towards the individual people as athletes, because I th- as I've said, for anybody who's cared to listen to the podcast, I think we as athletes are prisoners uh, of the moment uh, in time and training that we are, you know, participating in, especially the moment that we are brought into in sport has an indelible effect on our psyche and our thought process and our approach. Um, you know, but American men's cycling is bad and American women's cycling is extremely bad. Um, and how, what does bad mean in this context? It doesn't mean the, that the athletes are, are bad as athletes or certainly doesn't mean they're bad as people. It doesn't mean that they're, uh, you know, not, you know, interested in doing well. Uh, it just means that when you look at the standard of international competition, uh, they're not there. And the reason why they're not there is because they suck at training. And they don't suck at training because they as individuals suck at training. They suck at training for the same reason I have sucked at training um, is because our thought processes are wrong, right? So I'm as much in this space as everybody else. Um, and I've offered, right, you know, a, an interpretation of causality for this from a variety of different perspectives. Um but, you know, I'm also trying to emphasize here specifically that this is a problem that's worth discussing because there's a solution. Uh, I think, again, some people think that, well, the price you pay if you want to get good is you got to do this stuff. I remember coming across some anecdote about Pauline ferrand Prevost saying that her best attribute is her ability to absolutely murder herself in training and that she would do like four or six times 20 minutes at FTP. And that just feeds into this idea that, well, what separates, um, you know, the elites from the non-elites is the elites have this unbelievable capacity to handle the rigor, the challenge, the pain, the misery, the suffering that is training. Uh, And that's nonsense. Okay, that's nonsense. And I'm going to explain specifically um, why Pauline Ferrand-Prevost doing, maybe let's be conservative, let's just say four times 20 minutes. Most people can't do two times 20 minutes at FTP. Um, why is that, you know, a joke? Okay. Why is that meaningless? I don't, you know what, I'm going to be honest with you. It's perfectly plausible that she does that. 
perfectly possible that she does it. I'm not saying that she's making that up. I just think that um, there's an explanation for this, which is gets at the whole problem with FTP. Um, so in, you know, in some of this, you know, initial point, uh, a lot of people have noticed over the last 20 years, basically since the MLSS argument came out, you know, which was used and conventionally referenced as this four millimoles of lactate level, um, you know, which is sort of used. So first of all, I would point out the MLSS is usually closer to 30 minutes in duration than an hour, but now we have this site and then that's points used to point towards four millimole. Um, even though the reality is not all test subjects were all universally coming out of four millimole. So you can't say four millimole because you coach people and we're, we train as individuals, not in, not as a part of an average, right? So that's, that's totally bogus. Um, you can't use it that way, but then it's been further applied this four millimole value. That's getting blood lactate concentration for 30 minutes, um, is then being extended out as well. That's representative of what you can do for an hour, right? Or LT2, um, so this idea of, of you know, backing off um, of FTP, backing off of uh, MLS, back SS, excuse me, backing off of these higher intensity uh, modes of modeling and saying this is the key determinant or marker and and uh, training lever to determine how we should be exercising is not is not new. That's uh, not original to to me. Um, this idea is out there. Um, but it doesn't fit with our, you know, hard work pays off, um, our need for that heroic validation, you know, and I think, you know, the basic aspect of, of human nature, which is the Nash equilibrium, right? The, a lot of people have a lot of anxiety or fear, um, that we're, that we're not, we're missing out on the common experience, right? We're not doing, you know, we're competitive in the wrong ways, right? Sometimes in uh, economics, we say that market competition, you know, re- leads to innovation, um, and I think there's some evidence to support that, but it's also the case that uh, competition is only as effective um, as is our ability to arrive at strategies that are actually going to make a difference. Um, so when we think about FTP, um, we're rejecting FTP and we're rejecting any system that attempts to model training using FTP as their benchmark as a bunch of crap. Okay. And my challenge to you is to train this year without thinking about FTP, okay? And if you need help identifying lactate threshold, you don't know how to get to that because, right, anybody can go out and try to ride hard for 20 minutes and then take out their calculator and find 95% of that. And then it's like, well, now I've got this thing to work with. Uh, and that's wrong. Like, we shouldn't be learning to train off of a number. And we should be learning to train off of like recognizing how exercise feels. And that's what the value of working with a coach is. The value of working with a coach is not that somebody writes things in on a calendar and tells you to do them and then you do them 20% of the time or you cut out 25 or 33% of what you're asked to do. Okay. At that point, you're wasting your money. Okay. Put it in an index fund for goodness sakes. It'll be way more valuable to you. Uh, in the long term, but that, yeah, and even if you're doing everything they say, that's not the value of a coach. Okay. That's not the value of a coach. The value of a coach should be in the social dynamic, right? The interaction, the communication. Um, and if, and that's, you know, if you don't have that, right. And the coach should be somebody who's helping you get like, I think coaching is something you should get to the point 
where eventually as athletes, we really don't need the coach as much, that we need the coach less and less. And if the coach is not doing that, like that's sort of like um, the natural outcome is if you're coaching somebody effectively, eventually they've learned so much about what they need to do that they don't really need you anymore. Um, and if you're in a situation where, and this this idea that you always need a coach, that coaches are what allow people to be successful, um, and that that's a sign, that's a benchmark of being an elite athlete is having a coach is, is not true. Um, you know, and if you're constantly in a state of dependency, uh, then you're not experiencing personal growth in that area. Um, and you want to get to the point where you're seeking out, you know, consultants, right? It's a consultant thing, right? Okay. Hey, here's my idea. What do you think? Give me some perspective. I value your thought process. Okay. Here's my, here's my, what I'm seeing in my training. How would you analyze that? Right. And then you're getting the value, you know, of an addition, additional brain an additional mind. Uh, and that's the work of, of equals. That's the work of a partnership. That's when coaching is the most effective as a coach. You want to get the athlete to that point, you know, as, as quickly as possible, because that's when the good things are really going to happen because they're actually going to understand what they're doing. Um, they're actually going to be able to implement things correctly. Right. But we've created a culture of training and coaching that is just like the athlete to coach uh, pipeline, which just ensures, I mean, it's designed to ensure that people who are trying to earn their primary income from this uh, can continue to have um, a pool of people doing it. And the irony is, is that creating unsuccessful experiences is the reason why uh, coaching is not an, is not a growth, is not like a great pathway for a lot of people. Uh, to pursue. And that actually, if we created more athletes that were really successful, then more people would want to be in the sport, more American athletes, let's talk about the American context, way more American athletes would be successful, there would be more incentive and more potential rewards. And the increase in rewards incentives would be number one, they have more resources to hire coaching, it would mean number two, coaching would be more valuable. Um, and then number three, there'd be more interest in participating in this stuff because more people would have a positive experience and that would draw other people to it. Like that's actually what's going to allow uh, coaches to really, you know, um, be in a good position. But most coaches are paranoid that they're going to, you know, athletes are going to get off the leash because they're going to figure something out. They're going to not going to need the coach. And so like literally coaches encourage athletes to not question them. Um, and the other thing too, is if you're a coach and you don't want people to question you, like you shouldn't be coaching. Cause that means you're not confident enough in what you know, that you're willing to have a conversation that you see everything as a challenge. Um, and if you see things as a challenge, that has to be only one thing, a, a reflection of a lack of confidence. So in the last part of this podcast, um, I want to talk about five, uh, core characteristics or reasons that I'm not really big on, you know, numerical lists of some arbitrary amount, but it happens to be five things. Um, I tried to organize my thinking a little bit more here um, and say, okay, like what is the most um, effective way to do this stuff? So, um, and then I identified these areas to say like, okay, how do we know if uh, FTP is bad? How can we break this down? So number one, uh, FTP is not a meaningful valuation to be utilizing. So doing X time duration actually does not mean that you've identified 
uh, the same factor across multiple athletes. Okay? I'm going to say this again because people do not get this, and it is one of the biggest reasons why this is a problem. Okay? Doing a X time test does not mean that you're finding the same underlying factor for all of your athletes. Okay, the critical determinant point that you need to be thinking about as a coach or an athlete is what is the point of maximum aerobic response and then organizing your training around that principle. So a time duration test is only as effective as it is at identifying that and it's not effective. Okay, so we know lactate is the preferred, the primary metabolite for endurance performance. So that means that um, the more accumulation we have, the further we are away from the point of efficiency. And performance is a result of raising our efficiency. Bradley Wiggins is looking at his power meter and he's riding to power because what? Because he knows that if he goes harder than X, he's going to blow up. Okay? That is a common, long-held strategy to doing endurance sports. It's not original, right? Um, you know, but the sort of ignorance of the masses, the packaging of the old as novelty, right, obfuscates our ability to make the correct interpretation, to apply the correct perspective, and frame what's going on in a way that actually leads to understanding, okay? So if we take two different people and we have them do a 60-minute time trial, or as the logic goes, a 60-minute time trial is really hard, right? You have to do a 20-minute time trial, that's more manageable. Guess what? Exercising as hard as you can for any duration is always going to be hard, period. Okay. I've done, you know, plenty of these 20 minute tests. It, it doesn't, it's not easy, right? If you're trying, you know, it's like running or running a 5k, right? Like you're literally trying to go as fast as you can. You're going to very rapidly get outside of your, you know, comfortable, efficient state. Um, so if you take two different people though, and you do this, um, there, and you test their lactate at the end, they're going to be at wildly different levels of lactate. Um, you know, like, uh, I've said this before, but this is just one of the recent things that I've looked at and what's why it keeps popping into my head. Now, Lionel Sanders does Sanders did his test, you know, on the treadmill that he shared, and he ran his last mile repeat at 4:30, and his lactate was three point something. Um, you know, I have a friend who, if he goes out and runs as hard as he can for 20 minutes, his lactate's going to be like 11, 12, 13, or 14. Okay, he, that buddy of mine, that's great that he can do that. And work hard like that um, because, and I know he's working hard because he's so outside, he's being so grossly inefficient as indicated by the accumulation of blood lactate. Um, And that gross inefficiency, therein lies the issue, okay? So when you take these tests then, right, you say all these training models are the same, but you have different efficiencies, right? They're not the same, because you have different efficiencies. So if you have two athletes who have do the same power and the same watts per kilogram, right, in a FTP test, it is not the same because they were probably not going to have the same efficiency. And if they do, just increase your sample size and you're going to find that, like, there is no rule of uh, metabolic efficiency, 
okay? And we're using metabolic efficiency to find the point of greatest training benefit for aerobic intensity, right? For aerobic intensity to aerobic development, okay? So let's say you then do the training, right? So you say, okay, I have my FTP, and then, you know, your $200 to $500 a month coach tells you, okay, do two by 20 minutes. And you're like, this is so wonderful. I am so freaking happy that I paid this person $200 at the first of the month. So they could tell me to do the same workouts that I found on the internet. And that's how I know they're a good coach because I am paying them money to tell me things that I already read to do online, right? Congratulations. You're setting your money on fire. Okay. Um, but I guess it's special because you have a coach, right? And through the magical power of being able to say, I have a coach, um, you can see special magical things happen. Okay, good, right? Magic. The important thing is we can rely on magic, and magic will make us better as athletes, all right? Um, so you go and you do the workouts here, right? You've got the athlete who did the 20-minute test. They finished at three point, let's say 3.6 millimole, and then they've got the athlete who finished the 20-minute test at uh, 12.2 millimoles. Okay, right? And now they're going out and they're, let's do two by 20 minutes. Is this the same for the two athletes? Pause, think about it. Nope, it's not the same, okay? Absolutely, definitively not the same, okay? And then the training models that are either FTP-based or sweet spot, which is just defended as a fractional use of of FTP, it's it's getting there. It's approaching the idea that lactate threshold is this thing that exists much further down, um, and that's where you need to go if you want the real benefits here. It's approaching it, but it's not close enough um, to really to really balance out in the right way, um, right? And that's where some got to take these things further, and that's what we're trying to challenge these challenge these mindsets, right? So then you know you're going to have these athletes, and it's not going to be good, right? And the question is, well, how do you get to being uh, more efficient in the first place? Well, you got to train at lactate threshold correctly, right? And then you can get more efficiency and then you can do your 20 minutes or your 60 minutes and you're going to do it more efficiently because you're going to be more robotically powerful. And hey, those are the athletes that are going to be better. They're going to be able to go faster, right? They're going to be able to basically go for longer uh, longer distances at, you know, intensities or velocities, maybe we should say, that are a, a closer percentage of their sort of 60-minute personal best, Okay. Um, but you don't get there by doing FTP, right? That's, that's not causal. And I see this on Strava, people who beat their head against the wall, they don't improve and they don't know how to measure improvement. Okay. Which leads me to point number two, FTP is not a consistent valuation. The higher the intensity at which you are trying to measure performance, the greater the variance you're going to see because fatigue plays a like expanding role, right, in uh, fluctuating performance when the intensity demand is higher. And similarly, this gets compounded because the less and less efficient athletes are, the more blood lactate accumulation they have for 20 minutes, the more variation they're going to have. I had runners that I've coached at the high school level, for example, who did would do really well in some meets and then really bad in other meets. Their variance 
was really high because unless they were feeling really, really, really fresh and on point because they were working so inefficiently, um, they would struggle. Um, and then, you know, and it was all over the place. Um, and then the runners who were more, way more aerobically conditioned were very, very, very consistent um, because they didn't need absolute perfect, um, you know, levels of freshness and readiness to be able to perform and to execute. Now, here's another problem I should say before I forget. The other thing is a lot of this BS that's around goes with FTP is the stuff like openers. So you're working at this intensity that's very much dependent on carefully managing your muscular fatigue, and then you're just throwing in stuff to like go really hard and make your muscles even more tired. Favorite example, Green Mountain Stage Race happens every year in Vermont. I've done, did it once, pretty great event, um, really enjoyed it, except for all the cramps. But the first day you do this time trial, it took me like 16 minutes and 58 seconds, right? Like I said, I'm not an elite athlete, I'm not claiming to be. Um, but I beat Jillian and that's all that matters. Um, so we, you know, you go and, you know, it's, it, you start maybe the first six minutes sort of uphill, you know, pretty, you know, working pretty hard. And I was doing like 440 something or whatever for the first five to seven minutes, you know, very, very intense. There are people who go out and I see this on Strava every year, go out the day before, um, and, They'll, some people will literally ride the course as hard as they can. And other people go out and they, and they do their openers. They go out and do intervals at really high watts. Uh, that is dumb. <laughs> That's dumb. That's just going to increase. And then the same people, guess what? They go out into the race and then they're posting on Strava. I don't understand what's happening to me. I don't feel good. This didn't go the way I wanted. And they're basically saying, rationalizing with everything except looking at saying, my preparation is not right. I'm training too hard. I'm exhausting myself. Um, it's also not a consistent valuation because uh, you can't... So day-to-day, what that means then is if you're training off of your tested value, uh, your ability to sort of like even access that value on any given day is very, you know, inconsistent. Okay, so you're going to have huge disparities in your ability to do your intervals and do if you're doing breaking it in inter- intervals uh, to do your intensity, your structured, your planned training, because you're just not going to be able to manage it. Okay, you're not going to feel good when you need to feel good. You're going to be all over the place. Okay, and I used to sort of have this thought process about well, it's because your FTP changes from one day to the next, and I was listening to the On Coaching uh, podcast at one point a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, Steve Magnus brought up this observation of like, well, I tried to train with, you know, lactate in, in Houston and you couldn't control the lactate and it would be all over the place. You're not trying to control the lactate by running the same pace. You're trying to control your intensity and you're using the lactate to determine whether or not you're over. And then you're changing pace in order to find the right lactate, right? So he was thinking about this backwards and it brings to the point that like when we're picking these higher than lactate threshold intensities um we can't rely on our pace or watts to set intensity over threshold and this has led to the belief that well some days it's just really hard and then people pride themselves on that and that's a that's a sign of well they're so good because they go out and they do the stuff that's hard and well no because the other people are just trying to do it and maybe they're just too smart to be that miserable um, and so they're not doing it, but then they don't really have an alternative. So then they're just not training at all. And 
downward spiral, downward spiral, downward spiral, and then there, nothing's happening. And then American cycling is absolutely atrocious compared to the international standard. Um, you know, we want to train based on uh, lactate threshold as identified or indicated by our melamol, not based on lactate. And I think a huge, huge step forward would be a continuous blood lactate uh, meter. They could do this with glucose. Okay. I don't literally and figuratively don't understand uh, why they can't do this with lactate, but that would make a huge difference for people to be able to, I think it would be absolutely revolutionary. Um, and I think it would absolutely not be revolutionary because a whole bunch of people would just apply the wrong thing. We're like, okay, I got to hit four millimoles so I can be at FTP. Right. So that potential would be wasted. But everybody who listens to this podcast, we would really be on it because we'd finally have that uh, level of control. Then we'd be able to figure that out and get to that point much, much, much faster and be able to learn much, much, much more quickly what that intensity is. Uh, number three, the energy systems approach uh, as a modality of training, the sort of five zones, six zones, seven zones, all of that stuff is wrong. Okay. FTP is used to define multiple zones, um, and these zones are not real. This is the energy system argument, the argument that uh, we like some sort of uh, transmission shift, uh, not gears, but we shift from one engine to a completely different engine, right? And that'd be like if your car was designed with five different engines or something, and then depending on how you're going, um, you would switch to these different engines that run off of totally different uh, energy sources uh, and totally different, um, you know, construction and, and design and infrastructure and, and whatever. Like that is so evolutionarily backwards to interpret that the body would evolve a multiplicity of autonomous energy systems. It's evidence seems to me pretty clear that these energy systems are all sort of working uh, in concert at all times. Um, and that this belief that like, oh, you got to target to this system, or you got to target to that system. I, I just, I don't think that's true. And I'm certainly open to new information. And, you know, I, I repeat my invitation. If uh, you're listening to this and you're enraged, <laughs> you know, at my ignorance, please send me what I'm not seeing um, so that I can, you know, better understand. But I, my understanding right now, and I feel currently confident in this understanding is that these these multiple energy systems don't work, right? And the value of, um, and number one, the value of this FTP is also an extension of, well, you can use percentiles of FTP to determine these multiple other energy systems. Um, well, that's not true. Um, and then uh, number two, FTP is not like a real physiological marker in and of itself. So how can you use that? So that would only be valid if that was a real physiological marker, or if it was somehow like empirically and objectively always X amount of some actual physiological marker, which it isn't. Um, but like for some reason, when people look at exercise training stuff, we're so desperate to like hear something that, that's going to work or learn a way to train um, that we don't ask questions, right? And it's like we're reluctant to ask questions because like, well, if this is wrong, then I'm back to square one and I don't have anything to try. Um, so, you know, there is an argument which is valid. Uh, this part is valid, that different intensities of work lead to different kinds of 
outcomes. They lead to different kinds of capacities. That's true. Uh, I do think athletes should train harder than lactate threshold t- sometimes. Uh, I, Arthur Lydiard thought that. It's in uh, Klaus Lux's book. It's all over the place. Um, but we shouldn't do it in, in the way that is implied by the five-zone model. Uh, I read, you know, Cyclist Training Bible. I think it's basically a bunch of trash. Okay, it's just not, it's just, that stuff is not, it's not right. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't work, right? And that's the problem is we have the illusion of um, validation, right? Because it's like, well, but these, yes, somebody's going to be the best. Somebody's going to be in the best shape. There are people who smoke, don't smoke cigarettes and don't get lung cancer. Does that mean that cigarettes don't give you lung cancer? Right? We got to think about this stuff a little bit more. Right, you should look at how good is the population of American men's and women's cyclists compared to the international standard, and the answer is bad. Right, and then you should look at how competitive it is. I've talked about this on other episodes, but you know, in in the women's sphere in the United States, I think there is incredible opportunity for somebody who comes in with the right strategy to just basically seize control of that competitive environment and just put an absolute stranglehold on being the dominant women's rider from the United States because there's just not enough. People are competitive, right, and motivated, and they want to do well, but the strategies that they're using are holding them back, right? When we talk about the cycling being bad, it's a reflection on the strategy, and I think those athletes should be empowered with the knowledge to change their strategy, but they just keep buying into, you know, what they find, right, because they don't, um, I guess I don't know, right? I'm qualifying, I'm speculating, right? But it's almost as if people don't know what questions to be asking. We don't know how to look at this stuff. Uh, it's because they don't listen to the Black Cats Run podcast. Good grief. How could anybody have such a chasm in their life as the one created by not listening to the Black Cats Run uh, podcast? Um, number four, opportunity cost versus dogma. Uh, how to actually determine value on training um, FTP is, is an example of dogmatic training, right? You know, people saying something works, people saying it comes from, you know, this, this vault of mysteries that you can't understand, but I, the coach, am here to tell you. And this stuff will always be very mysterious. And, oh, as athletes, you know, we don't want to take the time to figure this stuff out. And we just, you know, that's what's great about me, the coach. I will collect money from you and I will spend 30 three minutes uh, a month writing out a training schedule that I will probably just cut and paste from all the other things I send to other people and I will pile your money away into my bank account and feel very good about the increasing size of my bank account. And I think that's great. You know, I think it's great that there's so many athletes out there um, who have found their true calling in sport, which is to give people money for stuff that doesn't make a difference to them. Hooray. If we want training to work, right, we're looking for the highest return on our investment. And part of that technically would be our financial investment, okay? Genuinely would be our financial investment. And I don't blame coaches um, for for charging people. I'm not going to spend my uh, time, you know, working on training with people um, for free. I have other things that I want to do with my time. I have a job. Um, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have to give things up. Uh, I'm not going to do that unless I'm I'm compensated. I already give out uh, stuff for free on the podcast and the Instagram page anyway. Um, And I've certainly talked to many people back and forth on uh, message on the Instagram too, right? But after a certain point, like, 
yeah, I don't think people should be giving out coaching for free, but I think people should be giving out coaching that's valuable. Um, you know, what we're trying to figure out is like taking, you know, uh, how like the minutes of X intensity, the minutes of Y intensity, Z intensity, A, B, C, D, E, all these different intensities. And we're trying to figure out which one is the most impactful. That's opportunity cost, right? The best training is the training that has uh, the greatest um, return, right? Compared to all other modalities. That's why my, my one of my goals uh, for the next year is to see, and I, I might not get there. And, you know, it might be a, a project that is uh, bigger in execution um, that I'm appreciating, but I want to design an app that will simply pull our training data, isolate um, our training done at threshold, and make a determination of how much improvement are we seeing uh, at that threshold over time to actually measure and report back to us, are we improving by tracking our changes uh, in our performance in terms of our training, right, to look for that to measure actual fitness, um, rather than just look at, you know, the what could you force out of the system for 20 minutes. Um, and I want to put that together, and then I want it to be able to make recommendations for people and say, well, based on this trend, to be able to say, try increasing to blank, right? And then as people try different things, it will move everybody as individuals towards your optimal balance. Uh, you know, that's my vision for that. Like that's the kind of, and that to me is responsive coaching, which is the model of coaching that I've talked about. That's, you know, consulting, right? Figuring things out, um, not giving people um, this, this thing, you know, I, I don't think that that's valuable, right? I think a lot of, it's like a lot of the coaching you can get for, for cycling and, and to be fair, running triathlon too. It's like a, it's like a pyramid scheme or something, right? It's like, oh, okay, well here, you know, we've got the, you know, person who like training peaks is a, is a pyramid scheme, right? It's like, you know, I don't do this anymore because I didn't want to do it at the time, but I agreed to try it. Uh, um, you know, I, you have to pay like a hundred bucks basically in a licensing fee and then you have to pay fees for every athlete, Right. And so then that gets passed on down to the athletes. Right. And then but athletes think that that has to be on training peaks or it's not real. And then, um, you know, uh, USA Cycling, uh, you know, director of road thinks that it has to be from training peaks or else it's not really working. And, you know, so all of this stuff is it becomes it crushes the idea of really figuring this stuff out. Right. It's a pyramid scheme. Right. Everybody gets locked into it and you owe money back up the chain. <laughs> And it just leads to the establishment of things that are extreme paradigm entrapment. Um, and then when an organization like USA Cycling, you know, has partnership deals with, with Training Peaks and says you can get a discount, that's bias, right? They have a bias. They're not there to support. Uh, I mean, everybody knows USA Cycling isn't there to support the athletes. Their whole, and this is pretty fair, it's, you know, an issue that's come up with uh, sports federations time and time and time again. Um, like most high performance environments are ironically very low performance. And uh, oftentimes the high performance environment is a very unremarkable environment. I mean, where Usain Bolt trained is very unremarkable, for example, just throwing in that as an anecdotal uh, piece of evidence. Um, but, you know, just because somebody uh, puts together some graphic in a table, it doesn't mean that there's some fundamental truth to that. Uh, and I, I've dissected this. Like, I've challenged the, the TSS thing. I don't think that that's validated. Uh, I, I, I did a, some episodes, and if you want me to point you to these, please message me. 
Uh, but I did some episodes where I deconstructed the TSS, uh, and I basically showed that uh, the TSS, I feel, I showed the TSS model is literally less efficient, that actually when you use this stuff uh, and you interpret it the right way, it actually proves that the suggested distributions of training are, are less effective than, than, just, tr- than just training at uh, actual lactate threshold um, all of the time. Um, I'm not going to go into that. That was like a multi-episode arc. So I'm not going to obviously open that up that can of beans. I, we've been there. Um, and uh, if people have questions specifically where we need to elaborate more, we can talk about that in future episodes. So the fifth thing, sustainable, okay? Benefits only accrue over the long term, okay? Uh, and it doesn't matter. You don't have to be an Olympic athlete. Okay, if you want to get good at this stuff, your training has to be sustainable. Okay, you don't want to be detraining and getting out of shape. Uh, how do you prevent detraining? Uh, you prevent exercise not happening. How do you prevent exercise not happening? Uh, number one, you eliminate stupid rules that have no basis, um, telling people that they need to have periods of time where they don't train. Number two, uh, you eliminate getting injured. And then uh, number three, you eliminate burnout. Um, training too hard is the reason why all three of those things exist, right? Coaches try to balance for overtraining at chronically overtraining athletes. And I promise we will have the, our last part of our over overtraining series coming out, uh, at some point soon. Um, but they're chronically overtraining them and then they try to like cancel that out by then detraining them. Okay. That's stupid. It, it becomes a zero sum game. Uh, most people, whether they've reflected on this or not, should realize that probably basically after the time they're 16, 17, 18, uh, they just never improve more or less again. Um, and I see this all the time. Athletes, ton of potential, uh, and they just like are constantly stopping training, breaking training, however you want to say that. The consistency is not there, and then they just don't improve. Six months will go by, and they're no better. Okay, they're they're no better. Um, and by better, I mean right on a definable, real uh, level, which is an aerobic level, because that's where performance is is based. Um, you know, the other aspect of this too is it's like when you train, when you try to follow a FTP or an FTP based model, you know, this sixty minute fallacy, uh, it, it leads you to ruination. It's awful. It crushes your brain. Uh, the worst thing Camden ever did uh, with his his training. Uh, my brother Camden, um, is he uh, tried at recommendation to switch to these two millimole intensity, this sweet spot type intensity, he burned himself out. He, you know, was crushing himself um, and he stopped improving for a period of time. And then he finally let that go. And, you know, he did the CS. Unfortunately, this coincided with when he tried CS Velo. And so then he just was never really at the level of uh, capacity he could be at because he kept trying to do these things and they just kept you know breaking breaking him down um, and then what people do is they think oh you know the athlete is is fragile they have um, you know it's a mental thing they're not tough and unless you're in an environment with people who really get it um, you're kind of screwed uh, I mean that you see this happen again and again and again and I also think that's wrong to teach people uh, that they lack some sort of mental skill or mental capacity. I think that's very harmful. And I think it's like, I, 
I mean, I, it maybe sounds like hyperbole, but to me, it is not like FTP and FTP based models or training are harmful because they teach us to view ourselves in such, you know, negative self-loathing ways. Why do you see so many people in American cycling culture burning out, right? Every year, you know, the cycling and journalism community is pumping out material about people burning out, about people quitting, and they're, you know, and they're, well, blaming it on this, they're blaming it on that. I'm telling you, the exercise, when done correctly, feels great all the time. It's enjoyable, it's rewarding, it's something that you would never not want to do, especially if um, it's not in competition with the time you need to do your actual job. Uh, people are burning out because they're this FTP model or sweet spot models or whatever don't work on that basis. Phil Guyman, I think, does the fast cat coaching. His training is like way too hard. You read his book, Train Too Hard. I'm sorry, the end. You know, it's the oldest story there is. Okay, and I understand, and I've acknowledged this before, but I'll throw it in again in this episode. I understand that, you know, in this culture, in this space, uh, people are really good at shutting you down. Uh, the silencing effect is very, very heavy on people um, who don't have a Wikipedia page with a sidebar uh, listing race results, <laughs> you know, but I, that's fine. Um, you know, you got to put this stuff out there. Uh, if the question is never asked, it's never answered. So you need to train in a way that you're going to be able to train over a long period of time because that's how you're going to get beneficial. And lactate threshold fits with that because when you feel good all the time, um, you're going to be successful all the time. When I got easy interval method, this just book just came up on Amazon at random. I'd never heard of it. Um, and I know other people obviously had before me, but I'd never heard of it. And I just saw it in September on Amazon. I, you know, I said, that looks eh, interesting. I try to buy books about training that look interesting, regardless of whether or not I think I'm going to agree with them. I wasn't thinking I was going to necessarily agree with this at all. Um, I thought the opposite, but I like to read the ideas because, you know, I'm always open to the possibility that we should all just be going as hard as we can every day, right? I'm sure that that's really must be the answer. Um, but it said in the beginning of the book that this idea is very controversial and not accepted. Um, and so I was shocked to basically see that the reason why this is the case is because, and yet also not shocked, um, I guess, at the same time. Um, but it was like, I guess, incredible that it's like, wow, people are totally rejecting this out of hand uh, because it's the training isn't hard enough. And the paradigm wants it to be intense. And that's just not where we want to be at. So New Year's resolution, no more FTP. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have any questions, comments, uh, evidence that you want to put forward, uh, feel free to send us a message on our Instagram page at Black Cats Run. Always happy to hear from people. Uh, we've done whole episodes taking an idea or a question that people have had. So and if, you, if you want to put that out there, and, uh, you'll be heard. Um, and we will try to incorporate uh, whatever you have where it makes sense to do so. Uh, if other people you know who like this kind of stuff, please feel free to send the podcast to them. Try to save everybody you can from FTP, Sweet Spot, other forms of bullshit. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.